Three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author and poet, Carl Sandburg wrote this. There is an eagle in me that wants to soar, and there is a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. Now, that's paradox, isn't it, that some of us experience two realities that seem to be contradictory, and yet both are true, and both work together to create a dilemma that has to be worked through. There are other much more important, weightier paradoxes than that. How about this one? God is transcendent. He is completely above, completely beyond us, and yet God is also imminent, near to us. Emmanuel, God with us. What a, what a mystery. The God who is far is near, and the near, God who is near is far. And so you and I have to wrestle through that dilemma so that we rightly relate to God. Here's a paradox that Jesus gives us. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Jesus sets up a dilemma with which we must wrestle. Somehow, we always have to be dying in order that we might live. One more. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. And so you and I wrestle with that one in our lives, right? Living in such a way so that we're always last, which in reality will make us first. These paradoxes are mysterious, and somehow they're always true, and they're never contradictory, and they keep our Christian life from being an easy-step religion. Three steps to blah, blah, blah. Four steps to blah, blah, blah. They take us to the mat, and they wrestle us. They keep our faith from being superficial. They require us to swallow our pat answers before we ever let them escape our mouths. We've got to wrestle with the paradoxes and their mystery, even when they seem counterintuitive to us, such as the one before us this morning. Happy are the unhappy, or happy are the sad. It's vital that we wrestle through this one. Otherwise, you and I might intuit that happy will lead to happy. Guess what? It won't. Only sad will lead to happy. And yet so many Christians and so many churches dare not make anyone unhappy. No black threatening cloud is ever permitted to come over our conversations and certainly no black threatening cloud should ever enter into a worship service because people talk to you because they want to feel better. People come to church because, well, I just want to feel better. I don't want to be made to feel sad. But without first being sad, they can never be happy. And so you and I must be unhappy in order to be happy. And we're going to see that this morning as we come to the second beatitude of Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to the Gospel of Matthew, 
chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. When you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we are holding it in our hands. I pray that you would continue to amaze us by that reality. The word of the living God accessible to us. Lord, now as we come together around your word, we thank you for the presence of your spirit, the indwelling of your spirit within us. We pray now, Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher. Give us understanding of your word and your truth. Bring transformation to our lives by your power, according to your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You might be seated. You may be seated. So you heard it. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Or it could be translated as earlier, happy are the unhappy, or... Happy are the sad. It's a paradox. How can those who are sad be happy? How can those who mourn be blessed? We have to figure that out. The word that Jesus uses here for mourn means to grieve with a grief which so takes possession of the whole being that it cannot be hid. To grieve with a grief which so takes possession of the whole being that it cannot be hid. Now, how can blessing, how can happiness ever come from that? Originally, this word for mourn was used to indicate the the deep emotional response that a person might have when someone in their life died. And you and I think that losing a loved one is the greatest loss we can experience. And we dread the day of that coming. Even when we stand before the congregation, when we stand before the minister on the happiest day of our lives, our, our, our wedding day, that joy is tempered just a little when we get to the vow that says, till death do us part. Even at the beginning, on the horizon for us, is that coming time of loss. Some of you have experienced that loss already. When we hold our newborn baby in our arms for the very first time, that joy is tinged with just a bit of fear that something bad might happen to this precious, treasured possession. Some of you have experienced that loss. You've outlived a child. And not to diminish that, but the word mourn that Jesus used here is not used in this sense. In anywhere else in the New Testament, this mourning over the death of a person, certainly the Lord is near. 
And certainly the Lord brings comfort to those who experience this kind of loss. And that kind of mourning isn't precluded here, but it's not the focus. This kind of mourning is not the focus of Jesus' teaching here. Though it seems hard to believe, there is a greater loss. Though it seems hard to believe, there is a greater loss. And I think that's precisely the reason that Jesus uses the word mourn here, because it's so hard to believe. And so Jesus is seeking to elicit this deep emotional response that should accompany this even greater loss, because we might be prone to dismiss it and the gravity of it. So what does this greater loss look like that needs to be mourned so deeply? Let me answer that by taking us back to the book of Deuteronomy. And the people of God said, Amen. Here we go. Back to the plains of Moab. God's people stand on that great plain. And they look and look across the Jordan River and they can see before them the promised land. And they are so ready. And they are so eager to enter that land that's flowing with milk and honey. And as they stand there, Moses poses these two penetrating questions. Deuteronomy 4, 7. Moses asks, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? Well, the answer is no other nation, no matter how great it is, has what we have, a God who is near, a God upon whom we can call, a God who answers us, A God who has not left us on our own to wander aimlessly and figure life out on our own. A God who has beautifully structured our lives through His law. A God who has set up for us a community where love and mercy and justice and equity will reign. This is who we possess. He is our God and we are His children, His treasured possession. But you know the story. You know what the people did with the treasure that was theirs. What God had graciously given to them as a gift. They cavalierly, indifferently, uncaringly opened their hands and let go of it. As if it had no value. But they had to let go of it. So that their hands would be free to reach out and grab those idols. Those God replacements in their lives. Those things that they thought would be nearer to them than God was near to them. Those things, those people that they believed would protect them more than God would protect them. Those idols, those things that they thought would provide for them better than God had provided for them. And so they did not obey God. And they did not follow his good commands. And after repeated warnings, and after repeated unheeded calls for repentance over the course of hundreds of years, God allowed that beautiful city of Jerusalem in his magnificent temple that was one of the wonders of the ancient world. 
He allowed it all to be destroyed. And he allowed his people to be carried away from that place and taken to Babylon where they lived in captivity. And while they were in in Babylon, in captivity, the mourning began. The deep, heartfelt agony of all they had lost. Psalm 137 captures the scene for us. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They were crushed by the memory of what had been theirs and what they had lost, what they had thrown away. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Their instruments were laid aside, unused. Who had the heart to sing? For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The songs of Zion were sacred songs, intended for worship, the worship they could no longer give to God. They weren't intended for entertainment. The songs of Zion were were joyful songs. We can picture those songs. We can always hear those songs. Like the one Miriam sang after God miraculously parted the Red Sea and his people walked through on dry land to safety on the other side. Miriam grabbed a tambourine. She grabbed dancers. They circled around. We can almost see and hear the tambourine playing and the skirts swirling and the, the smiling of their faces. They begin to sing songs of joy. Maybe for us it's a song like, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, they nishame. Hey! <sighs> My work here is done. <laughs> I won't ever do that again, I promise. Joyful, joyful songs. The captors want to hear songs like that. But those who mourn can't sing songs like that. Their loss is too great. Now let's fast forward to the period after the captivity is over. When God graciously allowed his people to return to Jerusalem. Ezra the scribe went first. He was followed by Nehemiah who went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And when that task was completed, they gathered the people in the square. Listen to Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Hint, hint. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, hence this pulpit, for the word of the Lord. 
And he opened the word of the Lord and he read it to all the people as they stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the emphasis here is on understanding the word of God. And perhaps it required from early morning until midday to read because as each portion of the law was read, there were the Levites to make their way through the people. Do you understand? Do you understand? Here's the meaning. Here's the sense of it. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What's happening here? When the word of God was read, people could clearly see the glory of God and the greatness of God. When the word of God was read, the people could clearly see the the goodness and the grace of God in choosing these people, though they were the least of all people, to be his treasured possession. When the word of God was read, the heart of God was on display. They could see the love of God toward them, the justice and the mercy of God. And when the people understood all that they had let go of, This God that they had let go of, they mourned and they wept because their loss was so great. Then the people were told, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Basically, Ezra and Nehemiah are saying, stop it. Stop mourning. This is a holy day, a day of joy. But apparently, the mourning continued. So the Levites called all the people, saying, be quiet, be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Such was the grief of the people. When they realized all that they had lost. And so when Jesus uses the word mourn here, we have this as a background. The mourning is very specific. It's mourning over the loss of relationship with God. It's mourning over the sin that had separated them from God. It's mourning over rebellion and disobedience. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14, asks, what is sin? The answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so you and I should mourn over not being conformed to him. Unfortunately, our culture conditions us 
to celebrate non-conformity. You know, in many ways, that's the word of the day, non-conformity. Do not conform. Be who you really are. No one has the right to set a standard to which you should conform. Be who you want to be. Do not be defined, not even by biology or genetics. If you don't like what you have, change it. Only do not conform. Would you like to hear what's really true? What's really true is that conforming is the greatest privilege we possess. Conforming is the greatest privilege we possess because we have a perfect standard to which we can conform. I'm going to skip ahead just a little. Look at the last verse in chapter 5 of Matthew. We'll unpack this verse later when we get there in 2020. But just listen to it for now. Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, that is the standard. Conform to that image and mourn deeply the loss when you don't conform. The apostle Peter was here on the mountain. He heard this teaching. He later writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Conform to that image and mourn deeply when you don't. The unseen God of the Old Testament, the God who said do not make any graven images, became the seen God in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could see the perfection of the one to whom we must conform. Conformity is a beautiful thing. And you need to be conformed, and you need to encourage others to be conformed to Christ. It's a beautiful thing. We should grieve, we should mourn when we do not conform. Romans 12, chapter chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you and I should mourn and grieve when we conform to the world and not to Christ. And so we've all got to ask this question of ourselves. In what ways are you not conforming to the will of God? To what extent does that non-conformity make you grieve? make you mourn. Listen, if you and I are not mourning deeply over our sin, we aren't understanding that sin rightly and the tremendous loss that it brings into our lives, the way it makes us distance ourselves from God and the consequences that that distance from God brings to our lives. And if we do not mourn, we put ourselves outside of the blessing That God promises here. So here's the paradox. We must be unhappy in order to be happy. We must mourn to be blessed. 
Happy doesn't have meaning outside the context of unhappiness. Comfort doesn't mean anything outside of the context of mourning. Joy doesn't mean anything outside of the context of sadness. So don't believe that the talk of sin is antiquated or inappropriate. Don't believe that the talk, the lie that the talk of sin is bad for you or for anyone else. Don't believe the lie that the talk of sin drives people away. Paradoxically, the talk of sin is the only thing that will bring them near to God. Because blessed are those who mourn, and happy are those who are sad. Let's move on from mourning to the next part of the verse and to what Jesus promises here, comfort. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Everybody good to keep going? (laughs) You could say no, but we're going to keep going anyway. The word that Jesus uses for comfort is parakaleo. That's the Greek word. And it means to instill courage in someone or cheer to encourage them, to cheer them up. It means to call to one side, to to summon for help. That's what it means. But what does it look like? What does it feel like? Jesus doesn't describe the comfort here in this verse. but, But he uses the same word for comfort in another story that he tells. And you know this story. It's of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to refresh your memory you know, the, the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. The rich man ate sumptuously every single day. Lazarus, on the other hand, laid at the gate of the house of the rich man. The only food that Lazarus got were the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Lazarus was covered in sores. The dogs came and licked those sores. So it's not difficult for us to imagine the the physical pain of Lazarus' existence, his hunger, the pain of his sores, and whatever other condition rendered him able to only lie at the gate of the rich man. We can only guess at the psychological and emotional pain he might have had. Questions he might have had about why he was in this condition or why he was treated the way he was treated. Anyway, both men die. And Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, heaven. The rich man went to Hades. And the rich man was in torment there and he lifted up his eyes and he saw Lazarus at the side of Abraham. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now, Lazarus is comforted here. Same word. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Even here, Jesus doesn't get into the specifics of what that comfort is, but he tells us that comfort is the experience of heaven. And so you and I are left to imagine what the comfort of heaven is like. And we might not have words to describe it, but we can feel it, can't we? As deeply as we felt grief and mourning over Lazarus, that deeply we can imagine the happiness and the comfort that Lazarus now receives in heaven. What was lost on earth is found in heaven. That's the comfort of the Lord. We can understand the word better as well, perhaps, when we think about the noun verb. The noun form of this verb, parakaleo, you'll recognize it, probably. Parakletos, we call it paraclete. And this word paraclete is translated variously as helper, advocate, counselor. And probably most famously in the King James Version as comforter. And it's the name that Jesus gives to the coming Holy Spirit when he's in the upper room with his disciples on the last night of his life. Jesus tells his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, paraclete, advocate, counselor, comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when the helper comes, paraclete, advocate, helper, comforter, when he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit of the living God is our comfort. And Jesus tells us that the Spirit of God is going to have a very specific role in bringing comfort to you and to me. And that very specific role that the Holy Spirit has is that He will bear witness to Jesus. That means the Spirit of God will confirm that every word Jesus said is true. The Spirit of God will confirm that everything Jesus did was authentic and effective. And the Spirit of God will attest to Jesus on the basis of personal knowledge because the Spirit of God was together with the Father and the Son from all eternity past. And so this is the comfort for those who truly mourn. Always looking at the person of Jesus Christ. That's your comfort. That's my comfort. But how do you define comfort? What does it feel like to you? Where do you go for comfort? Many answers, many answers come to mind right now. And so it's time for us to revision our lives. It's one of our words as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Revision our lives. Revision the things that we hear and our lives in light of this sermon. It's time to be radical. The second word, marking our time together. Because whatever those things or people or circumstances are that you think feel like comfort, that you believe bring comfort, they, they don't. Not really, not fully, 
and not lastingly. They may help you for a brief moment, but that moment is fleeting. The recliner that comforts you, it's going to wear out. The springs are going to poke up through the leather. Uh, through the leather. You're not going to be comfortable. The person who brings you comfort, that person might change. That person might betray you. That person might go away entirely. There goes your comfort. The substances that comfort you, well, their effects are fleeting. So just as mourning is specifically about the loss caused by sin, so is the comfort very specific. True comfort comes only through the person of Jesus Christ. He is our only comfort. I'm going to conclude now. And the people of God said, praise the Lord. I'm concluding with these most beautiful words of the most beautiful catechism. Heartwarming catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism. And this is the very first question. The very first question of that catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong. Stop right there. This is such a comfort. That I belong. I am no longer lost. I now belong. What a comfort. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul. What a comfort. I belong. I belong completely. Not partially, but entirely. Body and soul. I belong. I mourn no more. Mourn no, mourn no more. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death. What a comfort. I belong. I belong completely. I belong always. Never do I not belong completely. I mourn no more. My only comfort. Y'all following along with this? Because I'm having a good time. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What a comfort. I belong to Jesus, who is my faithful Savior. That means my comfort isn't based on me. My comfort isn't based on my wishful thinking. My comfort is based on an objective fact that Jesus was perfectly faithful. Perfectly faithful to his mission to seek and to save that which was lost. You and me, I mourn no more. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Right? We mourn, we, we mourn no more. Our sins, all of them, 
The sins over which you and I grieve so deeply have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a comfort. He fulfilled all righteousness and died on the cross for our sins. So let's revision, revision our lives around this comfort. I'm not going to find comfort in any other place except in my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's get radical about accessing that comfort. If you and I don't mourn our sins, we don't access the blessing of this comfort. And if we don't mourn deeply, we will not repent. But when we repent, when we're face down, grieving over our sins, like the people of Israel were on their faces, grieving their sins, Jesus comes and he kneels beside us and he comforts us and he tells us he's made it okay. He's made a way for us to be forgiven. He's made a way for us to be restored. Is it any wonder then that mourning is such a blessing? Keep wrestling with the paradox. Don't avoid it. Because only when you are unhappy will you ever become truly happy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you that you, as our faithful Savior, long to bless us. Lord, let us not lose sight of that fact this morning. You are working your way through blessings for your people. So we pray now, I pray that we would find blessing in the way that you have determined that it will be found. Lord, that's only through mourning. Mourning our sin, through mourning our lack of conformity to you and to your will for failing to obey. Lord, I pray that we would mourn the loss of that. That we would mourn the distance we know that our sin puts between us and you when we don't want to face you when we don't want to be in your presence, we don't receive your light. And so we wither away in the darkness. What tremendous loss for people who are filled with your spirit and called to be your light on, in this world. Father, help us to be people who repent often and deeply, who meet you in our time of repentance, and who are restored by you, and comforted by you, and filled with happiness and joy because we're brave enough to confess our sins and to receive your forgiveness. Father, transform us, make us repentant, mournful people, so that we can be truly happy and blessed and comforted by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.